Let's pray again. Father, we do thank you for these things that you have recorded for us. As Paul himself said, that whatever happened in ancient times, whatever happened in the history of Israel was for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so, Father, we read these stories not with disinterested, detached eyes and hearts, but as recognizing that these things played out as they did and they were recorded as they did because of how they tell the story of your great all-encompassing triumph in Jesus our Lord. And we are a part of that triumph. We are sharers in that triumph. We are trophies of that triumph and we are those who are uh, heralds and ambassadors of that triumph as partakers in this new creation and ministers of it for the sake of the world. And so I pray, Father, as we consider this episode uh, with Bathsheba today and the way in which it was such a crucial, monumental turning point in David's life and reign and really in the history of Israel, I pray that, that you would fill our hearts with a sense of understanding and, and compulsion to again be moved and filled with, with joy and, and a sense of, of awe and wonder at a God who has proven faithful, a God who has worked so marvelously and, and so mysteriously at times, a God who has required of his people that they believe him and trust him, even when things seem to be contradictory, at odds with what you have pledged, even when your own hand seems to be at odds with your word and your promise. I pray, Father, that we would be a faithful people, that we would learn from Israel's history, from the stories and, and the circumstances of, of your covenant people, and that as part of this restored Israel, this, this new um, household of faith that has Christ as its cornerstone, that we would be preeminently a faithful people. If those who went before were called to faith and faithfulness as they looked to the day of the Messiah, so we who look back on the work and the accomplishment, the triumph, the, the new creation that has come in the Messiah, how much more ought we to be a faithful people? So I pray that you will minister to each one, that you will help us to be encouraged, to be nurtured, to be strengthened in our faith and in our faithfulness. Meet us in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've indicated, I, as we move into this episode, we don't want to treat it in a vacuum. It's easy to just look at something like this and, you know, what we, we tend to do the Sunday school routine of taking, you know, these individual stories and isolating them and, and saying, okay, here's the story of David and Bathsheba and here's the moral lesson that we're to take away from that. But it's very important that we keep this episode in the larger context of the storyline of the scripture and, and more narrowly, even as it sits within David's own life and the relationship that he had with God, the covenant God made with him the role that he played in God's purposes and even in Israel's life. And to this point, as we've been considering uh, David's life, we've seen how 
he uh, was the, the king who fulfilled in, in kind of an initial way this idea of the king as a priestly figure and how this concept of priest-king doesn't just speak to the sort of kingship God wanted for Israel, but ultimately to the human role, that, that the human creature as image son is called to fulfill a regal and a priestly function administering God's relationship with his creation. So even from the very outset, we see that the human role is one of priest and king to our God. Last time, if you recall, we ended reading Revelation 5, where the triumph of this lion of Judah who appears as a lamb looking as if it's been slain is that he has purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So David's role is more than just the epitomizing king. Uh, he is the epitomizing Israelite, and therefore he's also the epitomizing human being. We see in David uh, a picture of what it is to live a human life, what ultimately God intends for all of us. And the scriptures will ultimately go on and promise a multitude of royal offspring for David in connection with the coming of the one seed of Abraham or seed of David. We saw that in, in Jeremiah 33. So these are the ideas that, that we have to um, frame the Bathsheba event by and understand the significance of it in terms of. But as we've seen in even reading chapter uh, 11, this episode occurred as David was taking his ease in Jerusalem. Uh, it says in the spring when kings go out to war. In the ancient world, they didn't have the technology and the capabilities that we have today. And so warfare didn't occur at night. And warfare didn't occur in the wintertime when it was impossible to move chariots and, and uh, logistical you know, issues, transporting supplies and all of that. And so warfare was kind of defined by the weather and by the seasons and by day and by night. But David sends out Joab, who is his nephew, but also the commander of his forces. He sends him out uh, to go to war with the Ammonites. Remember, Ammon was one of the two uh, sons of Lot, a descendant or a relative of Abraham, uh, Moab and Ammon. But the Ammonites and the Moabites were two kind of classical ongoing enemies of the people of Israel. But David sends out his army to fight and he stays back in Jerusalem. And the text says even that this is evening and he's arising from his bed. So he's been sleeping. It's the daytime and he arises from his bed and he goes up to his roof. And at that time in, in, in Israel, and it's still true even to this day, uh, the roofs were flat and they had kind of a, a rooftop balcony or seating area where you could go in the evening to cool off uh, as the sun was beginning to sit. And so David is up there walking on his roof after his day of leisure and he sees this woman bathing as he looks down uh, from the rooftop of his palace. That's the setting in which this occurs. And as I say here in the notes, the circumstance that enabled David's sin was actually itself a manifestation of his ruling according to the procedure of the king. What had God said when Israel wanted a king? And remember, Samuel was indignant about that. And God said, I'll give them a king, but they need to understand 
whoever they pick as king, this is how he'll rule. And part of what God described as the procedure of the king is that he will take your sons and he will bring them in. He will conscript them to fight his wars for him. He'll let them suffer. He'll let them die. He'll let them go to war for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of, of his own aggrandizement and the enlarging of his empire. And David is doing that. He's not out fighting with his men. He's reclining in leisure in Jerusalem and letting his men go fight his war for him. Now, after this, he will go and he will join them. But at this point, he's remaining in Jerusalem. So the Bathsheba episode only is exposing what is already this fundamental failure. David is showing himself to be like any other human king. So he spots her bathing and he sends a servant to find out who she was. Well, the servant comes back and, and tells David who she is and that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's one of David's valiant fighters. And even when he finds out that she's married, he still sends men to bring her back to him. And the text says that he lays with her and he defiles her. You see that where it says that after he slept with her, she got up and she washed herself to cleanse herself, purify herself of her defilement. And then she went back to her home. So then later on, um, within a few weeks, a month maybe, David learns that Bathsheba is pregnant and so now he has to figure out, what am I going to do? What's the problem? Well, her husband's been away fighting in his army. So how's he going to explain this pregnancy? How's this pregnancy going to be explained? And obviously his servants know what David has done. But pretty soon it's going to become public knowledge that she's pregnant. So he sends to Joab, his commander, to have Uriah come back to him in Jerusalem under the pretense that I want to know how things are going in the field. How's the war going? What's the state of the battle? So Uriah comes back to report to him. But David's intent in this is that he will get Uriah to go and spend time with his wife. So now there can be the appearance that he's the father. If he doesn't spend time with his wife early on in her pregnancy, then how do you explain the fact that she's pregnant? So David has an agenda in this. So he's actually expanding this corruption, the abuse of his power to now include deception and conspiracy. He's conspiring to create a false impression. But Uriah is presented in sharp contrast, contradistinction to David. David's concern is with himself and how's this going to play out? He's obsessed with this circumstance and how to remedy this, how to get himself out of this predicament. Uriah comes and he refuses to take any leisure. He refuses to do what David's been doing. Um, out of devotion to his king, out of devotion to his fellow comrades in arms, out of devotion to the God of Israel, the ark of God, and the cause of God and his kingdom, he says, I'm not going to go 
take my leisure with my wife while my comrades are out living in tents, you know, in the battlefield. I'm not going to do that. While God's ark is away from Jerusalem, while the kingdom of God is, is under assault with the Ammonites, I'm not going to take any leisure. So he refuses to go down and be with Bathsheba. Well, David, even though he sees this faithfulness of this man, he's not going to be deterred in his own agenda. And so he seeks to uh, get Uriah to, he makes him drunk, thinking that when his, his uh, resolve or, or his senses are dulled, he, he will go down and he'll sleep. And, you know, he'll kind of give in to, in a sense, the, this kind of desire to rest and refresh himself. If I can get him drunk, maybe then he'll do what I want him to do. His resolve will weaken. Well, that doesn't work. And so when that doesn't work, David realizes that the only option available to him is to have Uriah die. If it happens soon enough, then David can take Bathsheba as his wife and claim that child as his own. He can take it as his wife and claim her, take her as his wife and claim her child as his. If, if this doesn't happen soon enough, he could point to Uriah as the father and say, well, I brought him into Jerusalem and he, and he had time with his wife. He'd have to lie about what actually happened. But he could paint a scenario in which Uriah was the father of this child. And now that he's dead, David could show himself to be virtuous by taking this widow of, of one of his valiant men who died in battle and, and taking her as his wife and fathering this child as his own. Either way, he'd be able to preserve his own standing before his subjects at the cost of Uriah's life. And as I say, there's this old saying that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. David's not going to do the right thing, but he's going to do what is, he's going to present himself as doing the right thing, which in that way shows that he honors what is, is right. He honors virtue. So in kind of the, the high point of this incredible mistreatment of this man, he actually sends Uriah back carrying the letter that details his own execution. He sends this man back with a letter for Joab saying, here's how you're to see to it that this man dies in battle. David won't kill him himself, but he's going to see to it that, that Uriah is going to die in battle. And so he conscripts his commander and his army into his own murderous conspiracy. He instructed Joab to see that Uriah is killed in battle. And up to this point, he's used his authority to exploit and abuse his household servants Bathsheba and Uriah himself and now he's doing the same to his devoted nephew his commander Joab who's committed to David he's his right-hand man will do whatever he asks him to do and to the loyal men that are under his command he's bringing all of these other innocent individuals into his own conspiracy this is the way it tends to work isn't it this is the way power works so as far as the significance of this, obviously there's the actual events and there's the murder and there's the conspiracy and the deception and all of that. But 
the issue behind this is that David was supposed to be the king who would be distinguished from Saul. Saul epitomizes what God said would be any human king that you find, a man uh, who will rule according to the procedure of the king. Saul was a man who ruled in his own self-interest. The kingdom was even stripped from him because he assumed the priestly role out of concern for himself and his own kingdom. And David is supposed to be the man after God's own heart, not the man who's concerned for himself and his own agenda. He's the man who rules in, in the Lord's name, the Lord's authority with the Lord's mind, the man who rules devoted to the God of Israel. And David has shown that he is no different than Saul. And in fact, he's actually worse than Saul because of the distinction that he had. He had enjoyed a favor and a status and a care and a provision that Saul had never had. Plus, God had entered into a covenant with David that he didn't with Saul. He is, he is pledged to establish his throne in his house and his kingdom forever. David has a unique privilege and of whom much is given, much is required. So he's actually more culpable than Saul was. But his failure shows him to be a king no different than any other human king, which means that the Lord's designs for a particular kind of kingship that will ultimately be the way in which human beings are to exercise their own lordship on God's behalf, that awaits someone else. If God's purposes are to be realized, that awaits someone else, someone who will succeed where David had failed. And in the light of the covenant that God has made, the indication is that this one in whom God will establish God's house and throne and kingdom forever will be precisely the kind of king that David is not. So that's the way that we're to read this episode. Not as a moral lesson. Not as a lesson that says, be careful if you're married, don't let your eyes wander, you know, whatever power you have, don't exploit those under your care. It's much more significant than the superficial kind of Sunday school way that we tend to treat this. And this is evident in the way that the Lord confronts David through the mouth of his prophet, Nathan. The one that David had gone to when he wanted to build a house for the Lord, the one who God sent to David to give him the terms of the covenant is now the one that God sends to David to confront him. And that's significant. So this is chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sends, then sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, he tells him a parable. He tells him a story. And that becomes the way in which now he indicts David. He says, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. One who had power, the other who had no power. And the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, a female lamb, which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him a very precious thing to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take of his own flock or his own herd to prepare for this wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb because he could. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
then David's anger burned greatly. Remember, David is the shepherd that God took from shepherding the flock to shepherd his people Israel. So this shepherding story is very appropriate to David's own history and and even the way David viewed himself as the shepherd of Israel, the one who cares for God's sheep. David's anger burned greatly against the man as as he heard this story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel shepherd of my flock. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your care. I made you rich in every way. I gave you the power that you have. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. You did this secretly, and then you conspired to hide this so that it wouldn't become publicly known to the sons of Israel. What I'm going to do is going to be known to everybody. This isn't going to remain secret. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord, the nations around Israel to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. And David inquired of the Lord for the child, and he fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. David's pleading for the life of the child. And the elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him up, but he was unwilling, would not eat food with them. David is just absolutely undone, pleading with the Lord. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him. For they said, Behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw the servants whispering, he perceived the child was dead. And so he said, Is the child dead? And they said, He is. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he had requested, they set food before him and his ate, and he ate. And his servants said, What is this thing that you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. You wouldn't wash, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't do anything. 
And now that the child has died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while he was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? Yahweh may yet be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I continue to fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. So we see in the way that God pronounced his judgment on David the significance of what he had done. And the Lord did, in fact, confront David with this act of abuse of power, adultery, taking another man's wife. But ultimately, the significance of what David had done is he had failed as Israel's king. Remember, Israel is the Abrahamic people. What was their calling? What were they raised up to do? They were to live faithfully as God's people in such a way that the nations would come to know the God of Israel. In you and your seed, God covenanted with Israel or with Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God was going to recover the world back to himself through the offspring of Abraham. That was Israel's mandate. And what was true of Israel as Yahweh's covenant son was preeminently true of the king. David was uniquely God's regal priestly son. And so he had a distinct obligation to Israel's mission of witness and blessing. So when Nathan confronted David, he did confront him with what he had done, the specifics of the violation, but even more that he had given the nation's reason to blaspheme. David had shown himself to be a covenant breaker, to be an unfaithful Israelite, to fail in his own vocation as image son, as king and priest to God on behalf of the world. That was the great violation so yes, he was guilty of abuse of power, adultery, deceit, conspiracy, and murder, but as symptoms of the greater offense, which was his failure to fulfill his kingship and therefore his obligation to mediate the Lord's blessing through his own faithful sonship, to lead Israel into its own faithfulness as son of God on behalf of the world. So Israel's failure, which has been ongoing from Egypt, uh, is pointing increasingly to the need for another Israel. So even David, as the great hope of the nation, David, as the epitomizing Israelite, as the epitomizing king, has himself failed in a way that now there has to be the expectation of another king. As another Israel, so another king. And because this occurred in the context of God's covenant with him, this has grave implications for his house and his kingdom. And the way that God pronounces his judgment on David shows exactly that. The first thing is he's going to take the child, David's son, who is born to Bathsheba. But even beyond that, God is decreeing division, death, and desolation for David's house. First of all, his immediate household. Where's this going to go from here? Immediately in chapter 13, as we follow out of this, we're going to see the beginning of the undoing of David's household when his son Amnon rapes his sister Tamar, his half-sister. And Absalom is Tamar's full brother, and he's incensed that David won't do anything about this. And he ends up over time 
raising a coup against David where he seizes the throne of Judah, the throne of Israel. So immediately this, is, this sword coming on David's house is going to happen in his own household. A sword cleaves, cuts in pieces, and kills And a sword on David's house is going to bring division, death, and desolation into David's household. And then immediately, then beyond that, to his house that is his dynasty and kingdom. And this sword is coming on his house forever. It's a permanent thing. It's not going to, God's not going to relent of it until it's all hacked to pieces. And even David himself will suffer under that. This is what you'll see in chapter 13 through 19. And the whole story of of 2 Chronicles is the story of the unfolding of this sword on David's kingdom, beginning with Solomon and what I already said earlier about Solomon's failure, God pledging the division of the kingdom, that happening in Solomon's sons, Rehoboam, all the way to the point where Chronicles ends with Babylon and the final desolation, destruction of David's kingdom. That's what's coming. So in the near term, David's family is going to be torn apart, his own son leading a coup that will drive David from his own throne in Jerusalem. But ultimately, the great manifestation of the sword will be the rending of David's kingdom. First being divided into two kingdoms, David being left with only two tribes, and ultimately the complete destruction of both houses of Israel. So this is the first explicit indication after the Davidic covenant that David's throne and kingdom are destined to perish. Why is that important? Because God covenanted with David to build a house for him. Now God is pronouncing his determination to tear it down. It sets up the same kind of of incompatibility or contradiction as when he said to Abraham, this son is the one in whom my covenant will be carried forward. This son is the one in whom my promises will be fulfilled. Now take him and sacrifice him as an act of worship. How can you kill a son when all of the promises are bound up in the life of that son and his bearing of offspring, his having a family. How can Abraham become the father of a multitude of nations if this son is dead? Well, how can God build David's house when he's now going to tear it down? It doesn't make sense. See, this is, again, another point of, con- of contradiction or difficulty that God puts in front of his people. Will you believe me? Will you trust me? That's why I wanted to read Psalm 89, because it's already recognizing this beginning to unfold, this undoing of David's house and throne and kingdom. So it means one of two things is true. Either God has now renounced his covenant because of David's violation, or somehow God will fulfill his promises through a process of restoring David's desolated house and kingdom. And both the Israelite history and the word of the prophets to come will show that the latter is the case. God will keep his word to David by restoring what he tears down. And there's already a hint of that in that David, um, Nathan says to David, the Lord has forgiven you, you will not die. God, in a sense, restores life back to David and his kingdom. And you also see it hinted at in the fact that 
the union, the unholy, the, the violating union between David and Bathsheba is healed. So that the son promised in the covenant who will build the house of Yahweh, the immediate fulfillment of that, Solomon is the offspring of Bathsheba. Solomon is the product of the union of David and Bathsheba. So what is this adulterous, unholy, covenant-breaking violation God heals and he sanctifies? And even when um, the, the son, um, his name's escaping me right now, but the other son of David who claims the throne when, um, when David dies, David makes it clear that, no, the son of Bathsheba, Solomon, he's the one. He's the one. So you already have this hint of, of a healing or a restoring. God is going to make right what is wrong. And that's important for all kinds of reasons, but most especially because the covenant with David, the promise to David, is the way in which the promise to Abraham is carried forward. Remember I said before that the Davidic covenant takes up into its grasp all of God's covenantal promises and revealed truth that he has made known from the time of the calling of Abraham. And ultimately, as the calling of Abraham and the covenant with Abraham was the way in which God would fulfill his promise in Eden to restore the creation from the curse, the fulfillment of the covenant with David is crucially important because if that doesn't happen, then God's covenant with Abraham won't be fulfilled. That Abraham will become the father of many nations through a seed to come from him. And if the, if the covenant with Abraham isn't fulfilled, then God's intent for the creation won't be fulfilled. So it's not just about David. It's not just about who inherits the throne from him. It's not just about, you know, a narrow view of the covenant. It's ultimately about God's own integrity and his fulfilling of his pledge to restore the whole creation in a human seed who is to come. That's how crucial it is that God does fulfill the covenant with David. Now, from Israel's perspective, they saw it as ultimately the renewing of the kingdom of Israel, but they understood their own vocation that when God will restore us to himself, then we can begin to undertake this mission for the first time in a faithful way of causing the nations to know Yahweh and bringing them in. And that becomes very much, again, a part of the gospel message in, in uh, the gospel accounts, the four gospel accounts. If God is at that time now renewing the household of Israel, then that means it's time for the Gentiles to begin to be gathered in. And you see that in G Jesus' ministration. You see that in the early Jewish Christians and their sense that now in the Messianic work, it's time for the good news to go out to the nations. So that's how critical this is. But now from this point forward and for the next 400 years until the Babylonian desolation, the children of Israel would have to watch the Lord's sword progressively cut David's house and kingdom to pieces. It will just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse, less and less and less. And the final end is when Nebuchadnezzar lays a siege to Jerusalem, starves out and slaughters the people, tears down the walls, 
of the city, burns the temple to the ground. And then for the next many, many centuries, there will be no throne of David. There will be no house of David, no son of David on the throne. But through all of that, all of those centuries of devastation, exile, foreign domination, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, through all of that, up to the very time when Messiah will be born into the world, Abraham's descendants in every generation were confronted with the same challenge of faith. Would they yield their faith to their woeful and hopeless circumstance? Would they say, it's all lost, it's all hopeless? Will they yield to that or will they believe what God has said and hold fast to his promises? That's Psalm 89. They had to believe that one day those who remained faithful in Israel would see their faith rewarded. One day Yahweh would indeed visit his people. He would return to Zion. He would accomplish Israel's redemption. He would bring about the new exodus that they had awaited for so long, the exodus that Isaiah promised. And he would do so by raising up a horn of deliverance for them in the house of David. In that way, showing mercy to the fathers by remembering his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. And so I just want to close then with Luke chapter 1. Again, the gospel writers understand all of this, and that's the way they tell the story of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't just do it in a vacuum. They don't just say he was born of a virgin, he died on a cross so you can go to heaven. End of story. They, they tell the story in this way. So Luke, the Gentile who researches all of this, here's the way he tells the story. Verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Her name was Mary. And coming in, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, perplexed at this statement, and was wondering what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua, Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is deliverance. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That was David's title, that was the name that was ascribed to the kings of Judah. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There has not been a son of David on the throne for 500 years, or the better part of 500 years. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And she said, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Nothing shall be impossible with God. He can keep covenant in spite of all that seems to argue against it. And she said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Elizabeth is, is giving birth to a child as well. That child is the forerunner that Isaiah predicted, the one who will herald the coming of Yahweh, the return of Yahweh to Zion, John the Baptist, the Isianic forerunner. 
And when John is born, his father, Zechariah, this is now verse 67, and I'll, I'll end with this. John is now born. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, Zacharias prophesies. He recognizes the significance of the birth of his son. If this is the forerunner, then the time of Yahweh's visitation is at hand. The Lord is returning to Zion. This son will be the one who announces that. The coming of the Lord is at hand. He's coming to accomplish what he said he would. He prophesies saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Deliverance. He's raised up a horn of deliverance for us in the house of David, his servant, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies, deliverance, liberation from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. The oath which was then certified to David in connection with a royal son. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. He will finally deliver us from our captivity, end our exile, gather us back. Once again dwell in our midst and establish David's house, throne, and kingdom. That we would serve him without fear and holiness, righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before Yahweh to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation, this deliverance that is in the forgiveness of their sins. Covenant renewal. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by virtue of that with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Isaiah 9, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's the way Jesus is introduced in, law, in John's gospel. The one in whom Yahweh will finally keep covenant with David. The answer to the petition of Psalm 89. How long, O Lord? How long? How long until you raise up David's fallen house and tabernacle? How long until you bring in the Gentiles? How long until you raise up his kingdom? So this is the significance of the Bathsheba episode. It represents the beginning of the end of David's kingdom, but flying over that and behind it stands the promise of God that David's house and throne and kingdom will endure in a son to come from him. Somehow God will make the impossible possible. Somehow he will do what he said he would do. And this is a call to our own faith. We don't meet with the same kind of impossibility that they did, but we too have to trust God in seemingly chaotic, difficult, uncertain, impossible, what seems to us impossible circumstances. Faith and faithfulness are always the same. Well, let me close in prayer then, and then we can uh, have some time of discussion. Father, I pray that we see in these stories such a glorious portrait of a faithful God. And a God who's not simply faithful in some sort of abstract, arbitrary, undiscernible way. But a God who has proven faithful to his word by incarnating his word. 
a God whose word, whose promises are yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. As Paul said, all of the promises of our God are yes and amen in him. He is the one who embodies all that you have said, all that you have revealed, all that you have pledged, all that you have covenanted. He is in himself the truth of our God. And we see in his person and in his work, in his death, in his triumph, in his resurrection, in his enthronement, as the glorified son of David, the priest king who is the destiny of each of your people, we see in him the hope that is vouchsafed to each one of us. As those who are raised up in him, we are heirs of all that he has inherited. And Father, as you required of your people in the time of preparation, though they could only see dimly, without clarity, without clear understanding, they could only trust in the word of their God without knowing how and when and in what manner of person and and work you would accomplish all that you had pledged. Yet they believed you, they trusted you, and they died without receiving what was promised. How much more ought we upon whom the fullness of the times have come. We who have seen you fulfill your word in Jesus our Lord, we who are sharers in his life by your spirit, how much more ought we to be a persevering, faithful, unwavering people. I pray that you would encourage us with these things, that you would strengthen our resolve, that you would cause us to Uh, be all the more steadfast and resolved, committed, and that we would be a people who are not downtrodden, a people who are not despairing, a people who are not given to fear and doubt, and in the shaking and the quaking that characterize those who don't know you. May we not be those who look anxiously about us, seeking for remedy, seeking for the resolution of things that we don't understand through our own power, our own resource, our own understanding or agenda. But may we be those who rest in our God. May we be those who walk out the lives of sons and daughters, ever bearing that fragrance of Christ in whatever the circumstance we encounter and whatever comes to us in life. Bless us in these things, Father, and bless us even as we continue our worship in, in our discussion, in our, in our edification of one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.